Twitch. There we go. It is good to be with you. My family and I are all proud Americans serving in Canada, and we, get, we take a lot of grief for that. We are the subject of, of lots of jokes and teasing, but we have thick skin and we have a bigger army. <laughs> Oh, it's good to be in the homeland. If you have your Bible, if you would turn with me to the book of Luke, that's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be taking a look at a very common passage, the, the passage of the Good Samaritan. As a youth pastor, you pretty much have to know creation, fall, Noah, Samson, Daniel, Lyons, Den, Good Samaritan, and you're good to go. So we're going to take a look at a very common passage, but I trust it will be of of great encouragement and and prayerfully even instruction uh, this morning. And so before, as we're getting ready to open and go into the Word, I just ask that you would join me in prayer as we ask the Lord to open our eyes. Father, that is indeed the, the cry of our hearts this morning as we open your book and we know that you speak to us through it. I pray that you would open our eyes and open our ears, that we would see and hear and behold glorious things from it. And so, Father, help us in this. We desire to see Jesus, and so may that be the case this morning. And we ask this in his name. <clears throat> Amen. If you were to go home this evening and you're watching the news and the, the newscaster says something along the lines of, you know, such and such a thing happened and this guy was a good Samaritan, I'm sure you wouldn't fall out of your lazy boy chair uh, upon that biblical reference made by the, the news anchor. In fact, even unbelievers watching the news tonight, if they heard a, a reference to someone being, quote, a good Samaritan, they, they probably wouldn't call the news station and say, how dare you have such a, a reference of religious overtones. It is is such a common cliche in our society to hear even to use the term Good Samaritan that I would dare say that probably most people on the street today would know the cliche or the saying and even the, the definition in part and really may not even know where the context or where it originated from, that it actually is a, a biblical term or thought. And so again, it's not a shocking uh, phrase, and yet when we unearth what actually goes on in this passage, I, I trust that all of us will be reminded, refreshed, and, and maybe even uh, renewed by it, and we will find that, that it is actually a shocking passage. And so what is going on in this passage? We have Jesus, who is the, the master teacher, storyteller, And he is about to tell us a parable that really should shock all of us. And it all begins in verse 25. So if you would take the copy of your scriptures, mine is in English, thankfully, this morning as well. It says in verse 25, and I am reading from the CSB this morning, so it will be very, very similar to the ESV. An expert... And the law stood up to test him, and an expert in the law was a scribe. So a scribe stands up and he, to test him, him being Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So this is how the whole interchange begins. This is, this is the foundation of everything else that comes after. This is what it sets upon, is this question. This question by an expert of the law, this question by a scribe who's saying, in many ways, how do I get saved? How do I get to heaven? How do I have a proper, reconciled relationship with God? How do I 
do that? And again, the scribe is asking, and, and a scribe, and the CSB gets it right here, he, he's described as an expert in the law because they were experts in the law. They, they could quote it, they memorized it, they quite almost literally wrote it on their foreheads. And their system of belief, as I'm sure you were or are familiar with, is that the scribes and the Pharisees believed they could earn heaven. They could buy their way in, they could you know, merit their way in with their good works or their good looks or whatever good they could conjure up. They would get eternal life because they would earn it. So I believe that the heartbeat of this question in verse 25 in many ways is the scribe saying, Jesus, do you agree with my system, which according to him was right and proper and accurate, do you agree with my system of how one gets to heaven, i.e. earns it? is given it because I, after all, have attained it. And everything from here on is going to be Jesus' response ultimately to this question. This includes the parable that follows and, and the interchange that we're about to look at. Everything hinges on this question. So how or where does it go from here? The question is asked, verse 26... Jesus said, what's written in the law? He asked him, how do you read it? So in many ways, well, how would you answer this question? In verse 27, he says, and he answered, that's the scribe, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And so the scribe answers absolutely bang on correct. And we know this because look at verse 28 real quick. You've answered what? Correctly. You're right. So this scribe, if if he were here today, he would get the Sunday school award. He'd be Mr. Sunday school. I mean, he answered the question correctly. So he's, he's asking the right kind of question. There's not a more important question you can ask this side of glory than other, how, other than how you get to glory. So how do I, how do I get saved or how is someone saved is the most important question. He's then asked, well, how would you answer that question? And the scribe answers bang on. In short, you have to love God, and you have to love others perfectly. You have to love God, and you have to love others perfectly. At all times, all places, forever, perfectly. And Jesus says, you're right. If you are perfect at all times, you love God perfectly at all times, and you love others perfectly at all times, you can earn heaven. So what happens in verse 29, it says, But wanting to justify himself, wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, Who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Now, verse 29, there's two things going on here that exposes really where this guy's going in his heart and his thought process. First of all, you would have what I call the should have... And then what actually happened. So let's start with the should have happened. When he got to verse 28 and 29, what should have happened when Jesus said, you, you want to you earn heaven, you got to be perfect all the time. Love God, love others perfectly. In other words, you have to be sinless, never sin. He should have said, hmm, I don't love God perfectly. I don't love others perfectly. 
A, a, a weight and a ton of bricks of the law should have come crashing down upon him, saying, I am a man, as we've already read, of unclean what? Lips. Like, I can't love God. I don't love God perfectly. It's, it's impossible. I, I cannot love others perfectly. It, it's, it's absolutely impossible. I am too sinful. I am too selfish. I am too much consumed with self. That's, that's what he should have done. That's what he should have done. What did he do? As verse 29 says, seeking to what? Justify himself. So what he does is he says, well, that is what I do. I am perfect. I do love others perfectly. That is, unless Jesus, you're defining things differently than they are or ought to be defined. See, according to the scribe here in verse 29, based on what he says, it's obvious that he's looking at Jesus saying, Jesus, you're missing the point. He should have said, wait, I've totally missed the point. My, my whole religious system is, is an, I'll use a Canadian term, is an absolute gong show. Like it, it's, a, it's absolutely a joke. I thought I could earn it. I can't. I'm too sinful. That's what he should have done. And instead he's going, oh, actually... I think, Jesus, you're missing the point. So, maybe I'll give Jesus the benefit of the doubt. And I'll go one step farther. So, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Because if you're redefining that, then maybe we're working with different definitions or maybe even different questions. After all, I'm an expert in the law. So, upon this foundation... And upon this interchange comes the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so in verse 30, and again, so everything that follows, this is, there, there's no break in the passage. He's, he's continuing on. So it's not like they have this little conversation about heaven, how you get there, you know, good works versus grace. And then Jesus is like, hey, by the way, I got this really cool story. I've been dying to tell someone, and now I'll just interject it. It's, just, it's not how it's working. It's a, a seamless flow here, and all of a sudden the Good Samaritan parable is a part of this conversation. So Jesus took up the question and said in verse 30, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him, leaving him half dead. So here you have this self-righteous man who believes he can save himself, who believes Jesus is the one who's out to lunch and is missing the point. And so he spins it around. He's like, well, then who is my neighbor, Jesus? And Jesus begins with this story. He says, this guy's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he finds himself half dead. If you do a Greek study of the word half dead, take a wild guess what it translates into. Half dead. And so this guy gets himself beat up, finds help getting hit a few times, or probably more than a few times, and he finds himself half dead, absolutely incapable of doing anything, of helping himself. He's laying on the side of the street, bleeding. He's in big trouble. Anyone who had heard, who had heard this story would quickly say, 
what do you expect? You go from Jerusalem to Jericho, that's like almost a death sentence. This is like Thug Alley. You had a rock cliff on one side. You had quite literally a cliff on the other. It was just a narrow path that kind of wound down through like what we would call like a mountain pass kind of idea. It was, a, it was a thug's paradise. There were all these nooks and crannies that you could hide in, and they would wait for travelers, especially a guy traveling by himself. And as soon as they'd come by, they'd jump out, grab him, take what was on his persons, and off they would go. This is the type of imagery the listener would have had. And the scribe would think, well, he's getting what he deserves. Like, hello. That's like walking through the bad part of town. At night with $100 bills sticking out your ears. Like, not a good idea. So what did you expect? They strip him, half dead. It means literally that. And then in verse 31, a hero shows up. If you're the scribe, you're, you hear verse 31, you're like, oh, here it comes. I, I gave Jesus a bad rap, but now I, I think he's starting to get it, the scribe would be thinking. Because look at verse 30, 31. A, pro, a priest happened to be going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed on the other side. He passed on the other side. And so the scribe hears this, and all of a sudden the the hero, quote, is injected into the story. And he's thinking, great, he he knows exactly what to do. He, too, is an expert in the law. He, too, loves God perfectly and loves the law perfectly and loves others perfectly and lives it all out perfectly. The the hero's going to come in and do exactly what he ought to do as the the law would describe and prescribe. And ta-da! Jesus, you finally see it my way. Except verse 31 says the priest comes into the story, he assesses the situation, and he goes the opposite direction. The Greek there literally means anti. So he was anti-help. He was anti-direction. He was, to put it in our English way, you would say he went the opposite way. The scribe would be thinking, hmm. This just got really weird. This just got really interesting. Where is Jesus going with this? Because he of all people, the priests, would know what to do. Now, we'll hit pause just for a second because I have read massive amounts on the question of what was the priest thinking when he went the opposite way? Like, what was going through the priest's mind? And why would he do this? Page, like commentary page after commentary page of what this guy's thinking. And after reading plethora of ink that has been spilt on this subject, I came to the conclusion, I really don't care what the priest was thinking, and quite frankly, neither should you, because the priest is a fictional character in a parable, which means he doesn't have a brain, which means he wasn't thinking anything. So, like, what the priest was thinking and why he chose to do this is irrelevant. It'd be like if I got up here today and said, yesterday I was working out and I was as agile as a deer. And you're like, did that deer have antlers? Wait, you're missing the point here. It's about my agility. It's not if I have horns, right? Well, yeah, but what did that deer eat for breakfast? You're still missing the point. And so we do that often with these passages. You're like, well, if we understood the, the Levitical law, this is why the priest... Okay, maybe... But ultimately, that's not the point of, of, of what Jesus is saying here. So, yeah, it's important what deer eat for breakfast, and it's important if they have antlers or not. But that's not the point of my agility, as I was referring to me working out. Nor is Jesus making this point of, if you understood what was going through his mind, what he's doing is painting a picture of a religious system. 
The priest here is a symbol of a religious system. And this religious system is what? It's anti-help. It's, it's, it's anti-involvement. It's, it's going the opposite way. And so the hero of his religious system shows up and he goes the opposite direction. He's, he's no help at all. This man who is a Jew, he's a countryman. He, he, he should be helped. He ought to be helped. The hero shows up and he's anti-help. Why? Because he's a symbol of a system. A system that cannot save. A system that cannot reconcile you, you with God. And Jesus is using this guy as an illustration or an example of saying, This is you. This is your system. You're anti-help. You're going the opposite direction of God the whole time thinking you're going the same direction as who? God. It doesn't matter what was going through his mind. What matters is what he symbolizes. And what he symbolizes is anti-help. And this is a very nice gentle way that Jesus puts this religious system. Because if you were to beam ahead, or actually because we're in Luke, you'd have to beam backwards, to Matthew 23. You don't have to turn there, but Matthew 23, Jesus describes this religious system. And he does so in very clear words. In Matthew 23, verse 25, he calls them hypocrites. In verse 27, he calls them whitewashed tombs. In verse 29, he calls them murderers. In verse 33, he calls them snakes. And vipers. Hmm. Jesus, you're kind of vague in those terms. Like, very crystal clear. He's saying, here he's saying they're they're opposite. They're anti. Matthew 23, he's like, you're a bunch of dead guys who are like snakes and vipers. So this man-made system is is absolutely anything but helpful. It's placing incredible weight upon us as sinners, saying, do earn merit and we can't and it just pounds us farther and farther into the ground like a dead guy on the street and the system shows up and it is no help whatsoever ask yourself if you're this jew what did this system do for him nothing nowhere no help not a finger laid Left for dead if we're going to use a religious term because that's what he's representing as a religious system He's damned to death because a half-dead guy is going to be totally dead very quickly if unattended to. So the priest comes, the priest leaves, no help. The system only damns. So the scribe would be scratching his head now going, Jesus, where are you going to go from here? This is getting really weird. Look at verse 32. In the same way... A Levite. Okay, I'll take that, the scribe would be thinking. He's not a priest. He's kind of like a priest sidekick of sorts. When the main bald guy is in Alaska, the lesser bald guy shows up and fills in. Okay. <laughs> right? It's, it's, that's what's going on here. That's what the scribe would be thinking. He's, he's not the big wig. Dave has all his letters before his name. All my letters are in my name. So I'm just like the the lesser guy, right? And so, but nonetheless, the Levite would know what he ought to do. He would know the law. He wouldn't be quite an expert expert, but a little expert. And so, not the hero capital H, but definitely going to play the part today. 
And so the Levite shows up. He would assess the situation. When he arrived at the place, he saw him, and he passed on the other side. He does the exact same thing. Why? Because he's a byproduct of the same system, and the same system is what? It's anti. It's opposite. It's no help. The scribe, you can almost see him pulling his hair out, which I can't illustrate for you, pulling his hair out. Jesus, this is going from strange to weird to really weird. What are you doing? Why is this story going the way it's going? And then verse 33, it goes from strange to flat out, whoa, beyond words if you're the scribe. Look at verse 33. The hero shows up, no help. The sidekick shows up, no help. Anti, opposite, verse 33, but... And the scribe's thinking, you're out of heroes. Unless you're going to put me in the story. (laughs) But a Samaritan, and almost as if nails on a chalkboard go down. A Samaritan? The scribe would have chuckled. Honestly, I believe almost audibly, like, for real. They absolutely hated Samaritans, and Samaritans absolutely hated Jews. By the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, the the tension and bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans were beyond almost illustration. It's centuries old. You can go back to chapters like 2 Kings in Israel, or Israel, Ezra, excuse me, and you can find accounts of where they're just bickering and bonking heads or fighting literally. In fact, in John 8, the Jewish leaders get so irritated with Jesus, they say, you're demon-possessed and a Samaritan. As if being demon-possessed isn't bad enough. They had to put that right there on the top of it. Like, yeah, the devil is in you, and he's bad, but, like, you're a Samaritan as well. And so you can see the, the hatred they had for one another. It'd be like wearing, hey, I'm proud to be an American, and you're half dead on some street, and an Al-Qaeda member walks by. You'd be thinking, yeah, you're as good as what? All dead now. Same thing is happening or would have happened with the scribe as he hears this. That's probably why I believe he chuckled. Really? So at least, I don't know what he's going to, the point of his story is, but this guy's going to end up dead and he's going to go somewhere, I'm sure. What the point? Because a Samaritan is going to be anything but helpful. If the priest was opposite and the Levite was opposite, the Samaritan's going to do what Samaritans do. They're a bunch of thugs anyway. So a Samaritan is on his journey. He comes upon this half-dead Jew. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. And he went over to him and he bandaged his wounds. He poured olive oil and wine. And then he put him on his own animal and he brought him to an inn. And he took care of him. And so he has compassion on this Jewish man who is laying there by all appearances all dead. And he takes pity, and this pity is moved to action. This compassion is moved to action. And in verse 34, in most English translations, it's it's just 33 words, and they are a power-packed 33 words. 
gives us huge insight culturally as to what's going on in this passage. First of all, it says he bandaged him. And you're thinking, okay, like he pulled out a band-aid. But this is Jesus' day, and things were different then. And it was culturally normal for travelers in this day and age to only travel with, they could more or less put on their persons. So they didn't have suitcases. They didn't take change of clothes. In fact, most people in this day and age didn't have second sets of clothing. If you did, you were incredibly wealthy. And so if you traveled, even if you were wealthy, you would often take just what you could wear because it was easy to travel. And so if he's bandaging this man, they didn't have ace bandages in this day, obviously. If he's bandaging this man, he has to use the cloth that would be at his disposal. And if you're traveling, the cloth at your disposal is what? Quite literally, the shirt off your back. And so the picture of, I know they didn't quite have sleeves, but just roll with it. He's, he's pulling off his own sleeve. I'd take the tie off, personally, if it were me. But anyway, you pull off the sleeve, and he's bandaging this man. This, quote, sworn enemy of his, he's, he's binding. Not in a prisoner way, like in a medical way. He's using his own shirt. And then it says he pours oil and, he, and wine, and these are two essential things for pretty much all of life, but especially as a traveler. Wine, or excuse me, oil had something like a hundred common daily uses. It, it was, I once did a Google search of oil in Jesus' day, and the list was like, wow, like everything. It was like ancient day duct tape. I mean, it touched, they used it for everything, from cooking to Medical reasons to all kinds of stuff. The, the wine, the, what he could have carried or would have carried for traveling, they would have used it for, for disinfecting water. And so the two, these two ingredients, even though they were, again, they used them for all kinds of things, he would have had just enough for himself to get from point A to point B. And those two things picture essential things for his own life-sustaining Ability to get from point A to point B. And if he's using it on someone else, he's doing so at great cost to what? Himself. And yet he does. And then he takes him to an inn. And inns were, again, nothing like today. There are two forms of inns in Jesus' day. The first one is the one that we often run into when we hear the Christmas story, the inn, and it's a, it's a term that's used for like a guest room. So we often have guests that will come to the house and you say, oh, you're in the guest bedroom. That would be called an inn in Jesus's day. So a guest comes into my house, there's no room in the inn because the guest room's full, right? So that was one form of inn in Jesus's day where like the, the guest bedroom. The other one was the one that would be a little bit more familiar with, which is kind of like a, a hotel, motel kind of way. The difference is, is they were notorious for having horrible reputations. If you were an innkeeper in Jesus' day, basically, he may have been the guy who beat up the, the Jewish man. I mean, they were thugs. They used their businesses simply to rip travelers off because they could charge whatever they wanted. They could do whatever they wanted. No one cared. Really, no one stopped them. If you stayed in an ancient day, hotel, you did so at great cost and danger, personal danger to yourself because they were notorious for attracting, quote, the right kind of clientele. And so I believe based on the context, the hotel or the inn that's being referred to in this passage would be the latter. It's, it's, a, it's a hotel of sorts. 
So he puts him on his own animal, he takes him into town, and he checks into one of these establishments. To, to put it in a Western context, even though it would still be historical, a Western context would be like the hotels you would see above a saloon in the Wild West. You, know, you wouldn't want to be like, hey, kids, are going on a family vacation. Wild West. They're going to get shot. It's that kind of picture that Jesus is painting. In fact, just run with it for a second. Just so you understand what's going on. You, the, the Samaritan, you have a Jewish man, the, the traveling, the inn. Picture yourself, 1950, somewhere way down in the backwoods of Mississippi. And you have a half-dead white guy laying on the street. And down comes the road, or down the road comes a, a black guy on a motorcycle. And he sees this guy half-dead, and he picks him up, and he puts him on his motorcycle, and he goes into town, this little backwoods Mississippi town where like 50 people live. And they all have clansmen in the, in the family. And they come, he comes waltzing into town. What do you think the townspeople, especially the innkeeper, is going to think? Black guy, half-dead white guy. Hmm, I wonder who did it. That's the picture Jesus is painting here. Anyone hearing this story without the context would you know, just do the visual of the townspeople, because it would have been a Jewish town where he was going. Here comes a Samaritan bringing in a half-dead Jewish guy. I mean, this is a very dangerous thing for this Samaritan to be doing. This is, this isn't, to say it's life and death is not an overstatement. He literally is putting his life on the line to do what he is doing here. And in verse 35, it says, the next day, so he stays all night. So he's in this Wild West saloon kind of inn. He's definitely not just in the wrong part of town. He's in the wrong town. He's the wrong kind of person. He's helping this Jew that surely everyone's assuming he did it to the guy. He stays in this seedy place that's going to just rip him off anyway. He stays all night, which is incredibly dangerous. Some would say suicidal. And then the next day, he flips him enough money to pay for multiple days' stay in a system that is already going to rip him off anyway. So now he's paying financially out the nose for this, not counting the fact he's missing a sleeve. And what he's used to get from point A to point B, he used on this guy. So just cost upon cost upon cost, compassion upon compassion, grace upon grace. This is mind-boggling. At the end of verse 35, he says, take care of him. I'll come back. I'll pay whatever is needed. That innkeeper's like, oh, trust me. In verse 36, Jesus asks the obvious question with a no-brainer of an answer that even Mr. Sunday School could get the answer right. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Do you want me to actually answer that out loud, he's thinking? Because it's so obvious. Well, obviously the one who showed mercy to him. And Jesus looks at him. And he says, go and do the same. The end. Because if you look at the passage, it, if, if it's bold in with, uh, with a header, it says Martha and Mary and mine. And so the, 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 the context completely changes. It's a, it's, a, it's a new story, you could say. And you're thinking, wait, did I miss something here? Like, wait a second. 
that that's kind of a strange ending. Like, what does the scribe do? Like, what's the point? Why did Jesus just say, go and do? What was the original question? How do I get to what? How do I get to heaven? And the guy who's asking believes he can what? He can earn it. He, he believes somehow that he can merit enough to stand before God and God say, yeah, as we often say or think or have heard in our context today, the scales tip in your favor. That's the system he believed. And then maybe Jesus got this whole neighbor thing wrong and so I'll ask a different question. Really, it's the same kind of question to, to show Jesus really where Jesus is missing the point. And so Jesus says, you're asking me who is my neighbor. Let me, let me tell you a story of what neighborly actually looks like. Or how all people are our neighbor. Which goes to show that there are dumb questions, or at least better ones. And then he gives the Good Samaritan... And he paints a picture that shows perfect love and perfect compassion and immense sacrifice. And he says, go and do the same. I grew up believing that the Good Samaritan was about helping the needy. And really this passage has, you could apply it in part to that. So I'm not saying that if the kids in junior church today are, are being taught this exact same passage, if they're like, hey, we need to be kind to one another, we need to be neighborly to one another, that that's, that's heresy. But that's not the point of the Good Samaritan. The, the point of this passage is for all of us to stop in our tracks and say, I cannot love like that. I am too selfish. I am too sinful. I am too proud, I am too racist, I am too self-absorbed, I am too self-reliant to love like that. Why? Because that's when Jesus goes, exactly, and that is why you need what? You need me. Because the hero of the story is the Samaritan. Take a wild guess who the Samaritan is a picture of in this story. The one who's... Telling the story. Jesus himself. Jesus is the Samaritan. He was the outsider. He was the one who is hated. As, as sinners, we, we are born God-haters. We, we don't cozy up to God. We, we're anti-God. We're opposite way. We run. We, we love darkness rather than light. And Jesus shows up and nothing changed. We still love darkness rather than light. And he comes bringing a message of, love me most. No, I love me most. Well, how are you going to be reconciled to God? Well, I'll earn it. Really? Let me tell you a story of what it looks like. Well, I can't do that. Maybe the scribe did fall on his face when he said, go and do likewise and say, I can't. I think it's fair to say, like the rich young ruler, that is a very similar passage. He too walked away sad. Because like the rich young ruler who had great wealth that he would have to turn from, because that's what he loved most, to love God most, and he loved his money more, he walked away sad. I think the scribe in this story looked at his merit and his religious accomplishments and his Mr. Sunday School ribbons and say, I can't turn my back on that. It was too much work. It was too hard. And it is too hard. I have to give up everything. And I love my darkness more than 
light. And so as we teach this story to kids, we teach it to ourselves, this story is a story that shows us the horror of man-made religion. It shows us the horror of trying to earn heaven. We can't. It's like the song we sang that was all about this. As we were singing, I'm thinking, wow, that's pretty much my message. We could just say, amen. I I can't buy it. I can't earn it. I can't do it. I'm too sinful. I need Christ all All of Christ and Christ alone. Because we're like that Jew who's on the street, half dead, completely helpless. Completely helpless. He can't fulfill the law. He's he's out cold, as Romans 3 says. There's none good, none righteous, none seek. We're all worthless. The wages of sin is death. We're in many ways like the Samaritan, not the Samaritan, excuse me, the Jewish man. We're, we're living dead people, completely helpless. And that is why we need our Savior. That is why we need Christ to come and to save us. And he did so at great cost to himself because he came and he lived. He lived the life I can't live that I'm called to live, but I can't. And died the death I deserve taking the wrath of the Father upon himself so that I may have life. So I pray that when we get to the end of the text here for our time, go and do likewise, that we stop on our own tracks and say one of two things. Either I can't and turn to Christ. Or I've turned to Christ, and we look back on a story like this and go, Praise God that He loved me long before I loved Him. As Ephesians 1 speaks about the fact that He showers us with His grace and adopts us, takes us into His family, He saves us. It's not my doing, it's His doing. That is why this story really is all glory is to Christ. I believe that's even the song we're going to sing here at the, at the end. And when I saw that, I, I smiled. I thought, what a, what a fitting way, because that's, that's what this story is designed to do. I, go and do likewise. I can't. It's all Christ. All glory be to Christ. And so as we look at this account, and I assure you that we will teach it to young, young people for as long as the Lord tarries as we ought to, as much as we want to be neighborly, and as much as we want to help the helpless or feed the poor, by all means, use other passages that talk about that. Use this passage to show those young people they need Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the account of the Good Samaritan. And Father, we confess that we often read it and and just see neighborly help. Father, may we see it for what it is. It, it is It is a story that is designed to cause us to, to be horrified at our self-centered religious ideas. Father, may this account drive us to Christ, the one who is the hero of the salvific story, who has shown up, who has lived, who has died, who has risen again, and that through him and him alone we can have life. May we turn from our man-centered, sinful ways to embrace all that you are for us through your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.